real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right, we're back with another one. Uh, it's Nathan Romus here, and today we're going to be talking with Michael Ewinson the executive director for Alberta Serious Incident Response Team, or I guess more commonly known as ACERT. Um, to give you a bit of background on uh, Mike, so he started his career with the Public Prosecution Service of Canada, and that was in Yellowknife in 2002. He was called to the bar in 2003, and he began working for, uh, after that, he began working for the Alberta College of Physicians and Surgeons in Calgary and spent some time there. He then went on to become Deputy Chief Crown for Calgary in 2012. Uh, and a point I uh, made specific uh, reference we're going to get to uh, with Mike is he took a year off to do uh, his LLM in International Criminal Law, which is War Crimes Prosecution in Ireland, and that was in 2014. And then he started as the executive director for ACERT. And that was December of 2021. Currently, that's where he's at. And he teaches evidence law at the University of Calgary. So welcome, Mike. Thanks so much, Nathan. Thanks so much for, uh, for having me on for the introduction. And uh, I'll just backtrack one part of it because I never realized that the acronym is actually the same for both. But uh, ACPS was uh, actually my time with the um, Alberta Crown Prosecution Service, although... Uh, yeah, it, uh, it could actually stand for College of Physicians and Surgeons. I'd never thought about that before, so uh, I should have been a bit more clear about that. But. Oh, no, you know what? I could have flipped you back an email there and uh, asked because I saw that and I was actually talking to someone recently about that and some investigations going on. I was like, oh, he was working there. <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought of that. Uh, so that's my fault. But no, thank you for being on and uh, uh, hopefully we have a good discussion today. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Happy to be on. So if you could kind of start um, from the beginning where we do with most of our guests, the first time they're on, uh, we'd like to get to know you and tell us a little bit about yourself. If you could kind of run through some of the points that uh, I'd covered in your intro. For sure. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I guess uh, I've become a bit of a, a Calgary guy in life. I wasn't born and raised here. I uh, really grew up in Revelstoke, BC, but uh, at some point my parents have moved to Calgary, so it's uh, become home base. But I uh, did law school at New Brunswick and uh, finished that up there. And then um, didn't really want to know what I wanted to do with uh, a legal career. So I went and uh, didn't show this on the resume, but worked for half a year in South Africa, and uh, which was a great experience. And uh, once that was all said and done with, I realized, well, I'm going to start paying off some student loans. So that's when I, I found the job in Yellowknife and went up there to work with the um, uh, Federal Prosecution Service. And, uh, you know, at that point, I'd never had any expectations of working in criminal law. It wasn't something that I found that enjoyable to study in law school. But um, I guess I'm more of a courtroom guy. I really liked um, everything that goes on in the courtroom. And uh, my uncle was a, a police officer in Montreal, so I've always had that respect for policing. And uh, really liked working with the RCMP up in Yellowknife and the close relationship we had with them. So really, when, uh, when I got called to the bar, they said, well, we've got a spot if you want to be a, a criminal prosecutor. And I said, for sure. So. Spent the first couple of years up there and, uh, you know, as a, a young single guy with no uh, family to be tied down to, I was uh, spending every second week on a twin otter, flying around to the communities in the north, uh, doing court on the circuit court rotation. A great experience. I really saw the, uh, you know, the benefit of community policing and the relationship that the RCP had with uh, the local communities up there. And uh, so I did that for a few years, but, you know, real estate in Yellowknife has always been really expensive. And um, so I had to make the decision, is that going to become home? settle down or, uh, you know, was I going to move back to Calgary where my parents were and uh, made the decision to come back to Calgary. And, uh, you know, in that sense, uh, the rest is history. Got a, a great job down here working with the Alberta Crown Prosecution Service and uh, started working hand-in-hand with CPS and uh, saw the, the great work that a lot of their investigators were doing on stuff and was really stimulating. So I did that for quite a few years and, um, you know, became deputy chief of the office at one point, which was a great opportunity. And then, um, as you mentioned there at the intro, the uh, the war crime studies and doing my master's, I uh, I got to the point where you know I had a really understanding boss, and my wife and I talked, and uh, we had uh, 
just one son at the time. He was two years old. And we thought, geez, if we're ever going to go overseas and going to take up that opportunity, uh, now is the time. And so I got to leave the absence and went over to Ireland and studied for a year. So uh, did that, came back and prosecuted a bit more. And then the Acer gig became open and uh, fell into that. So, so that's a life story in 30 seconds or so. <laughs> and you teach. So you apparently have a lot of time, right? You got... <laughs> the family on the go and you're teaching and you're doing the ACERT work. Yeah. Yeah. I found the teaching great. It's when I got back with the, uh, the masters, uh, the law school reached out. They like most of their, their profs. So I guess I'd be technically called a, a sessional lecturer, but they like those individuals to have masters in law, even if it doesn't directly relate to, um, to what they're teaching. And they had an opening for uh, an evidence professor and, um, you know, being, Teaching evidence, it covers all manners of evidence, both civil and criminal, but the vast majority of the case law is criminal-based. That's where all the litigation occurs for the most part. So it was an easy fit, and um, so I spoke with them and said, look, all I really can give you is uh, night class hours, and uh, they were very understanding. So I did it for a year, and it was um, really, really stimulating. Really, really enjoyed it, but a lot of work, but I felt it really helped my career as well because I was keeping current with the law, so it really trickled down to uh, what I was doing as a prosecutor. And so, yeah, I did that and then took a couple of years off from doing it and then uh, did it again last year and I'll be studying again to teach uh, this semester. So you know, it's nice to see because some of the students that I taught when I first did it, uh, now they're, they're lawyers and uh, so they've become colleagues. And so it's sort of nice to see their development um, in criminal law and uh, you know, I'll bring in guest lecturers and so forth. And so it's, uh, it's been a good experience. But yeah, it is, it is pretty busy. So I fit that in with my son's hockey practices and then you know just teach one term of it and take it easy in January, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's actually a a pretty cool aspect to any job, especially if you're a a really motivated person, you want to see kind of the fruits of your labor. So when you get to, you know, pass on the knowledge and the wisdom, and then see that person grow. So same as having kids, I guess it'd be, um, you know, you have your students, and they go on to bigger and better things, hopefully. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. You know, there's a couple that are actually prosecutors in our office in Calgary. I guess I should say my old office now that I'm um, with Acer, but uh, yeah, they, they went through my class and uh, now they're out prosecuting. And, um, you know, there's been times when I've been talking to homicide investigators, you know, about some aspects and I realized that, you know, any advice I'm giving them on the erosive evidence is actually stuff I picked up while preparing for my course. So uh, there's really that, mm-hmm. that side benefit to it. That's been really, really good. So uh, most of your stuff has been on the prosecution side from mm-hmm. what I understand. Did you do any work as defense? No, no, I haven't. Um, you know, I've, I've got no, obviously everybody appreciates a really good defense lawyer and there's a very important role for defense in society. So I've, I've, ever, I've never had anything, you know, ethically or psychologically uh, against uh, doing it. It just, I really enjoyed my career advancement at the Crown's office and it got to the point where I became deputy chief where I thought, well, if I ever want to do you know, do defense work, um, you know, open my own shop, be my own boss, which of course all has its advantages. Then that was really the time. And, um, I really liked where my career was going within, um, Alberta Crown Prosecution Service. So it's just not an opportunity I took up. And now, you know, at this point in my career, it's just not something, um, I, I'd look, be looked to be doing. I really, uh, am enjoying working with ACERT right now. And so not looking too far in the future, just really want to, uh, spend my time on that organization. So um, we'll maybe kind of go back a little bit sure. to the beginning and talk about your time with the Public Prosecution Service. So can you explain uh, for the listeners who, kind of what that is? And when you say you're doing the circuit, how that kind of works? For sure, for sure. So you know, use Alberta as an example. You've got uh, your federal prosecutors and your provincial you know, uh, crown prosecutors with the Alberta government. And um of course, you know, we know the provinces have jurisdiction over prosecuting criminal law, and then the federal prosecutors, primarily, you'll see them in court dealing with uh, drug prosecutions. Up in the Northwest Territories, it's a little different because, of course, the territory isn't a province, and so there's no territorial prosecution agency. So the feds up there at mm-hmm. Yellowknife prosecute everything. So when I went up there, you know, you head to court, you might be prosecuting a uh, possession for the purpose of trafficking trial one day. And the next day you're dealing with uh, domestic violence or sex assault or something like that. So they cover everything. And so that was really my time spent with them was uh, first articling, which was, uh, you know, doing a, a little bit of everything. And then as a prosecutor, just uh, handling all the different prosecutions they had going on. Um, pardon me, just going to deal with a bit of a throat cold. So I'll apologize in advance, Nathan, for any cops I have here. Yeah. No. But, um, and then, yeah, the circuit court was, um, 
there was one office in Yellowknife and then they, uh, another one up in the Nubik. And the Nubik had one prosecutor. So Yellowknife was the main um, prosecution office. I think we had, at the time, 14 or 15 prosecutors. And so we'd prosecute the offenses in Yellowknife. <clears throat> but it's important that justice be seen to be done in the communities as well. So because there's very limited road access in the Northwest Territories, we would have um, court out in all the local communities. And so I would travel with the judge, with a legal aid, public defender, um, the court clerk, and the other staff. And we would hop in the Twin Otter and spend a week just bouncing around the north from one community to the other, uh, holding court. So that was the circuit court. That's pretty cool. I, I think um, maybe it doesn't sound great to a lot of people, uh, always being in the air or on the road. But uh, uh, having been with the Mounties before, and I've traveled to several communities in Alberta just to do different uh, investigations or files but when you're actually out there doing that stuff it is pretty neat you you don't realize just what goes on in the rest of the world you know you're kind of most people are stuck in their little bubble yeah yeah you don't realize how how much of canada exists you know uh up north really we're so used to most of our population hugging the border of the united states but you get way mm-hmm. up to uh you know tuck yuck tuck or uh you know i got as far as holman island i think it's called by uh a different name now to its, uh, it's uh, indigenous name, but it's uh, you know it's, you fly about an hour or so from Tuktoyaktuk North, one of the, the islands up in the Arctic, and uh, it's just amazing to see how far Canada reaches and the unique culture that's up there. And uh, as you, you alluded to with your, your time at the Mounties, just the the importance of the relationship of the police in those communities, because oftentimes you know they're it in terms of um, you know having that sort of community structure. Uh, you might have a nurse, yeah. uh, a couple Mounties, and uh, and so they become a really important part of the community up there. And so I just love doing it. You know, it was a bit of a hard lifestyle because, you know, you're rebouncing around. The hotel facilities obviously aren't the best. Um, I never had computer access at the time that I did it in one of those communities. So you went in and you know, prosecuted with paper and had to, you know, have your own independence and sort of think on your feet. But it was a wonderful way to see communities in the northern Canada that, you know, I knew I would never get to as a tourist. Well, and I guess... From your viewpoint now, being with ACERT, if you kind of reflect back to that time of being up in the north, can you kind of describe uh, the relationship between the Mounties or any other local police and the communities? Because my own experience with the Mounties was that uh, you're you're way more ingrained in the community. Uh, like you're saying, they, they don't have a lot of resources or services up there. So you have to fill a lot of different roles. Uh, which is much different than when you're policing in a, a large municipality. Uh, you know, you're in the big city. You're you're much more detached, but you also have a lot of different services. So, just with a lot of the the narratives going on about um, you know people saying they don't necessarily want police in a, a certain community, or there's the the history of the relationships there. Um, what was kind of your experience uh, in looking back on that? Well, I felt that it was a really positive experience. I mean. There's nothing wrong um, with officers, in my view, not living in the community that they're, they're policing in, right? Because they get to know the community through their shift work and through those relationships they create. But mm-hmm. with Mounties in, in those small communities, you know, they had no choice. Like they were definitely living within these small communities. And they would come in for, say, a two or three year uh, rotation. And so right away, there's a new guy or gal in town. And it was, I always felt it was an overwhelmingly positive relationship because they got to know the people. And they got to engage in what truly was community policing. That not everything related to an investigation or an arrest. They got to know the personalities um, in domestic situations. Um, you know, they were able to, to lend a hand without laying a charge by talking through some aspects of it. So, yeah, I think, you know, and I, I can't speak from personal experience because I obviously wasn't a Mountie. I was just a prosecutor that would fly in and out. But I formed really good friendships with a lot of the Mounties that were up there. And uh, obviously, you know, it, it takes a toll on a person because then you're kind of policing 24-7, you know, when you're, there's really no anonymity. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's your, your weekend off unless you're grabbing a flight out of a small community. You know, when you're walking around, everybody knows you. And so you have to be prepared in terms of mental health to sort of always be, you know, be recognized and be there and then being called for assistance in that as, uh, aspect. But the community knowledge was uh, amazing. And when we're able to fly into a community a little bit in advance, and speak with the um, the local officers. We could say, you know, what's what's the problems in the community? How is so and so doing on probation, or or how is this family doing that's had some issues with alcohol and domestic violence? 
and uh, and they'd have that inherent knowledge. And so they were able to give back a lot just by understanding the community that well, which really is really only capable uh, in those small communities where you're uh, you're sort of living right with the people that you're policing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Oh, and I would uh, say that's 100% correct from just my own experience, uh, having been in a lot of those smaller communities. So from there, you moved to Calgary and you're there for quite a while. Um, what was kind of your experience and how would you contrast that with doing the Yellowknife circuit? You know, it, it was eye-opening. Um, you know, you, you march in the court in, in Yellowknife and you know what judge you have, you know, the defense lawyer, you know, all the officers. And so it was very familiar. So there's a lot of things that, you know, you might have to navigate or worry about in a big city that you didn't in Yellowknife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I had to, to find my way, you know, understanding a larger police force, um, larger office processes and so forth, but I had good mentorship. And, um, and really I just sort of felt, uh, the first thing I had to do was build relationships. So get to know defense counsel, get to know the judges, get to know everybody in the office and then not be too much hard on myself in terms of that learning curve. Um, and then really, um, you know, after that, I was lucky enough to be paired with some senior prosecutors on some large files. So I just really learned from them. And uh, that was something that wasn't as possible in Yellowknife. Uh, the office certainly did its best, but when you have a smaller office and people out on circuit court and so forth, uh, the mentorship opportunities aren't as great just because they don't have the staff to do it. Whereas we had a larger office in Calgary, so we had better learning opportunities uh, with the senior crown. So I got on some large files and got to know, you know, some really good detectives with the Calgary Police Service. And so I'd say, you know, after a few years, I really sort of felt like I had a good footing. And uh, and then after that, you know, I just felt I didn't want to leave. I really enjoyed living in Calgary, uh, enjoyed Alberta, and, uh, you know, it turned out to be a pretty promising career. Well, I imagine the uh, the sheer volume of calls would be much different Yeah, when you compare anywhere in the territories to Calgary. So you're doing, you're learning a lot more by doing, I guess, more hands-on with different types of files. A hundred percent. Yeah. That, that's a perfect point, actually, Nathan, is, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, in the Northwest Territories, uh, I'd say, you know, I, I don't have a pie graph in front of me, but I think it's a pretty safe guesstimate to say like you, over half is, is alcohol-related mm-hmm. domestic violence. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, tra- it's, it's tragic. Um, so, you know, you do your best and you understand that area of the law uh, well, and you, you develop a good uh, understanding of, of how to speak to people who've been victimized and, and try to assist them with the court process, sometimes successfully, sometimes, you know, you do your best and it doesn't work out. Um, but you don't have too many bank robberies or insurance frauds or, you know, uh, crimes of that nature, uh, sophisticated crimes. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a lot of alcohol related violence, whether it's domestic or not. And so getting down to the big city, all of a sudden, you know, you've got, uh, at the time, you know, a full staffed impaired driving prosecution unit, for example, which is something we would never have in the North. Um, you've got people working with tech crimes. And, and so a lot of different areas where, you know, you can sort of see what interests you and then go down that path. So you're quite right. It's a, a much greater variety in a large city. So there's those opportunities to really learn um, how to prosecute different files, how to deal with their different areas of evidence and uh, create relationships with the, uh, the different units with CPS that ex- had expertise in those areas of crimes. So then from Calgary, you, uh, you said you had taken this year off to do the LLM. What do you, uh, can you say what that stands for? Sure, sure. Yeah, so that's just a, a master's in law. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so now they call it, I think, for, for a regular law degree, I think they've changed the terminology. They call it Juris Doctor. But that's the old way they used to call it with an LLB. And so a Bachelor of Laws and then the Master of Laws is the LLM. Okay, so what did you do for this program? So... You know, long story made short, right when I graduated from law school, um, there was an institute that was created in Ireland, and it was created around the same time that the International Criminal Court was created. And it was staffed by a uh, Canadian by the name of uh, William Shabas, who's a really well-known scholar in um, war crimes, genocide, and so forth. One of the leading experts in the world, and just so happens he's from Canada. So he was the head of this institute in Ireland, and I really wanted to go and do my master's at that time. But... Um, you know, student loans being what they were and having uh, lived outside of the house for both undergraduate and uh, and law school, I just didn't have the money. It just didn't make sense. And so that's why I sort of embarked uh, on the brief uh, trip to South Africa and then worked up in Yellowknife. But it was always a dream that sort of sat at the back of my mind. And uh, I told my wife about it. So she was very supportive of it. And um, so like I had mentioned there previously, you know, we sort of said, okay, 
our son's two, you know, just turned two uh, years old. My boss was supportive. So we just asked for a leave of absence to go over to Ireland and study at that same institute, albeit, you know, many, many years later. And, um, yeah, I got accepted and my boss at the time in, in Calgary was remarkably supportive. So we really just took a year off and, and did that master's in that area of uh, international criminal law. So were you practicing, uh, like, were you actually doing trials with people that had committed war crimes? No, it was a, it was a purely academic experience. And so uh, I was just over there mm-hmm. getting the degree. And so getting the okay. degree allows me, if I ever want to in the future, embark upon those sort of prosecutions. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a year of study with um, some classes. You know, we, we traveled to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Uh, we had instructors that had prosecuted and judges, in fact, that had been, pros- or pardon me, um, judging trials, both in the Rwandan and Yugoslavian tribunals. Wow. So it was a fantastic learning experience. And, you know, it's uh, selfishly like who doesn't enjoy an Irish pub, right? So <laughs> so it was a great, yeah, it was a great, great year off, um, really, really stimulating. And then at the end of it, um, we just sort of gave some thought of, of what do we want to do? And uh, we realized, you know, we want to expand our family and, and live in Calgary a bit longer. So came back here with a degree. All right. So that brings us up to your time now with ACERT. Mm-hmm. You're the executive director. And what is your current role? What do you do on a, a day-to-day? So I guess I'm the, the best way to put it, I guess, would be the, uh, the head of the organization and technically the civilian in terms of embodying the, the principal civilian oversight. So I operate out of Calgary, but do travel up to Edmonton quite often. I have uh, an assistant executive director who's a former prosecutor out of Calgary and a, a friend of mine uh, by the name of Matt Block. And so he's also uh, occupies a civilian role. And then after that, we have, you know, in terms of our uh, hierarchy, we've got a director of investigations uh, who operates out of Edmonton but oversees all the investigators. And then um, investigating managers and investigators below that. So I would run the organization um, sort of in the the hierarchy of government uh, sit uh, just below assistant deputy minister. And so, um, so yeah, so I just sort of make the calls with the organization in conjunction with the great staff I have working there. And uh, on a day-to-day basis, really what ACER does is the investigators are either uh, seconded um, police members. So we have seconded EPS members, CPS members, and RCP members. And also what we would call government of Alberta employees who are retired officers who just purely work for ACERT. And they do, they do something a bit different compared to regular policing. Um, all they do is investigate and accumulate facts. So an officer um, for, with EPS may form an opinion in witnessing an event and lay a charge. Officers with A-Search won't lay the charge. They just accumulate the facts. And then that goes to the civilian oversight branch uh, for legal review, which is uh, myself, as well as my assistant executive director and another legal counsel. And then we would make the determination as to whether or not um, the file should go to prosecution or an officer be cleared. Okay. Well, so when, I guess, like, there's a lot of discussion right now about civilians overseeing police or police investigating themselves. Can you kind of um, walk us through that narrative and what you might foresee as uh, maybe a perfect world scenario what there might be uh in the end for oversight sure sure so yeah the, the civilian oversight model really started in ontario um, with their special investigation unit and so they've been doing it for a while um but acer has one of the best mandates and most encompassing mandates but you know to be clear we're, we're not called out on a daily basis to investigate any time a civilian you know points a finger at an officer and says i think they've done something wrong so in my view, um, EPS, CPS, the RCP, and the other police forces in Alberta do an excellent job um, investigating their own um, uh, you know, issues that may crop up. ACERT becomes involved when our mandate was triggered, where something is serious or sensitive or um, an individual suffers bodily harm or death um, at the hands of the police. And to be clear, it may be entirely justified. You know, an officer may shoot in self-defense, but ACERT's still going to get called out. Um, we don't choose our own investigations. So we are never in a situation where we can self-direct. So I can never actually say, look, I think you know, we need to investigate. I saw a shooting on the news. We're going to take this on. Instead, we're directed to investigate by the director of law enforcement. Uh, and so when we are directed to investigate, then we deploy a team. And that team goes and accumulates the facts. And as I said, then it passes it off to me in terms of making the determination. Uh, I think it's important for public confidence. Um, 
you know, it's not so much the situation of the police not getting it right when they investigate their own. It's, will the public tolerate that, right? And um, so in that sense, it's important to have an organization like ACERT. So when we do clear an officer and say, look, this officer fired in self-defense, the affected person had a weapon, the officer had no choice. Sometimes if the police investigate themselves, uh, a member of the public might say, well, you know what? They're just covering for themselves. But if ACERT's doing it, we're able to say, look, we're independent. And the facts were accumulated. A civilian has come to this conclusion this officer fired in self-defense, they're not going to be charged. And it's the hope and the idea behind ACERT and other organizations across uh, Canada that have them, because many provinces have similar models, that when those determinations are made, uh, then the public's able to say, okay, you know, we trust that determination, uh, which hopefully is a benefit, not just to the public, but to police officers as well. Well, and even on that, so one of the things that uh, just I personally have never really understood about the whole argument about whether it's police or civilians uh, that do the oversight part or even the investigations for that matter. But they, the, the narrative about, you know, uh, police are just protecting themselves or their buddy and covering things up. You can still be friends with a civilian. So it's, to me, that argument doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I can still hang out with the civilian person on days off and we could be best friends from grade one. Um, you know, like those relationships relationships can still exist so i just find mm-hmm. that it, it, in the end a lot of it is kind of like a, a utopian narrative where it's like well but we're we're humans and we're not perfect and as long as people whether it's police or civilians uh doing the oversight that there's just some accountability and and we can present the facts and say this is you know this is what happened this is what we looked at and this is the decision we made Exactly. And these are um, decision-making process is very transparent because what I do is when I formulate a report, I write it up and then we release it to the public. Um, we don't include names. So we don't name subject officers or witness officers. We just use acronyms, um, you know, SO or WO, and we don't name the effective person. And so there is that, that privacy within it, but we do li- um, list all the facts. And, you know, I, I put my name at the end of it in terms of my determination, and then that goes out to the public. And so, when we do clear an officer, we can say, here's what we've determined. Here's the facts as we see them of what occurred. And here's why it's my determination that, you know, for example, an officer either is charged or not charged. And so we lay that out to the public in terms of that transparency. Um, and I think when, you know, if they spend the time and read those reports, they, they realize that, you know, policing is a remarkably difficult job. Uh, we have seen, obviously, an increase in firearms on the street. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, if somebody has an issue with it, they can go through the legal reasoning and, um, you know, and see where we got to the point that we did. Uh, can you comment a bit on maybe how, like, so you see a lot of the stuff in the U.S. right now. Can you comment on how there, there are the differences, I should say, between maybe the U.S. side of things and their accountability uh, for police and then contrast that with Canada and how we handle things? Well, from what I understand in the States, there's various levels of, of police forces. And so, you know, you might have a, you know, a small town sheriff, you've got different levels at the state level, at the federal level. And so, uh, kind of stratified. Whereas in Canada, um, you know, our oversight is, is significant. It's all entrenched in legislation. Um, so we have one process, one process alone in terms of ACER being deployed in Alberta. Um, you know, BC has their own process, Ontario has their own process, but it's all processes you know, based on, on legislation and sort of a one-size-fit-all across. And so in Alberta, um, for example, um, you know, ACERT has uh, jurisdiction over every officer, whether they be with EPS, CPS, mm-hmm. RCMP, Medicine Hat, Lethbridge. So you're not getting different levels or different organizations on a community uh, standpoint um, that are employing that oversight. Uh, so, of course, each uh, individual organization, if they're dealing with a matter that hasn't hit ACERT's mandate, may have their own processes, and certainly will. But uh, ACERT employs the same process province-wide, so every Albertan will see that, you know, these reports come out, we're using the same reasoning, the same standard of law, um, the same fact-finding, and the same major case investigation protocols for every officer across the province. So there's that uniformity within, um, you know, one province, whereas in uh in the United States, from what I understand, uh, it's very much more um, jurisdiction-specific jurisdiction in terms of various levels of, uh, of policing that you may see. Do you think, uh, and I ask this because uh, some of the stuff in the States now, they're, they're very quick to 
put out details of an investigation or, or what happened. You know, as soon as something, as soon as they think they can put a piece of information out, uh, they're, they're putting it out there. Do you think we would ever be able to move towards something like that? Because, um, and uh, the reason I ask too is because I had uh, Kim Bolin, a gang reporter from Vancouver on. Mm-hmm. And that was one of her points was the police need to share more information, you know, whether it's the names of victims or, you know, uh, why this shooting took place or who's involved. So are we at a point where we can move towards something like that if we even want to move to that? So we, we do somewhat already. And so what ACER will do is we have memorandums of understanding with the various police forces. And so even if EPS wants to release information, they're going to reach out to us if ACER's investigating to get our okay. Um, and what we are guided by are really two principles. One, we want to maintain public confidence. And so if we have a situation where, and we've done in the past, where we can verify right off the get-go that the person who was fatally shot by an officer was armed with a handgun, for example. And then instead of letting the rumor mill go crazy and social media doing the evil that it can do mm-hmm. in terms of getting the wrong narrative out there, we may release um, a photo of that gun and say, it's investigating, um, but you know, an affected person was shot and killed and they were armed with a handgun. And here's a picture of the handgun. Uh, and we've done that um, in the various investigations. But what we are guided by is one, that we want to make sure that that is a fact. And so if, for example, we're not sure or we haven't interviewed everybody, then we're not going to send out that information because it's improper because we haven't reached that formal conclusion yet. And the fact finding is most important. The second principle that we're governed by in those situations is that if we think there's other civilian witnesses that may be out there, the last thing we want to do is to taint their recollection or their evidence. And so just like any normal investigation, you know, you're not going to have EPS necessarily. If they're not sure about a fact or they know there's other witnesses out there that might come forward, they don't want to say, hey, the guy who robbed the bank you know, uh, was wearing a red hoodie. You know, if they want other witnesses to come forward and give them that evidence, they don't want to taint the recollection of the public. And so there's times when we won't release information because we want to make sure we're getting it from the witness first and foremost, instead of them hearing it third or fourth hand. And so that's just, you know, normal evidence collection rules. But, but there certainly are times when we will release information as soon as we can, once it's verified. Um, you know, you raised the point about getting names out there in terms of victims and so forth. Uh, our protocol regarding that is the same across the country with other agencies. Uh, and we just simply don't name um, the names of victims uh, that are shot. And uh, certainly, you know, if they're injured, they can name themselves to the media. Mm-hmm. And the family certainly can come forward and, and provide those names. Um, but we won't do it because I want to provide them some privacy. Um, for their grieving process. If they reach, wish to reach out to the media, uh, defense counsel, whatever it may be, we can never bind them uh, to silence. Yeah. And I will never in a meeting with a family say, don't, please don't give out this information. It's a free country. They can talk to whoever they want. But we're not going to come out uh, and name those people. Unless it's a very odd circumstance where we think that we have to name them because it may assist in the public's uh, understanding. But if it's just you know, a random person on the street, um, you know, uh, it's not going to enhance public understanding of the shooting to release the name. And it can do the family uh, grave damage in terms of the healing process. Yeah, and kind of to your point that you're saying about not tainting what a witness might say, I just know from, you know, the hundreds of investigations and the thousands of people I've talked to over my 10 years, uh, witnesses are actually very bad at recalling stuff. Stuff can happen 10 seconds before you show up and they'll tell you the person had a red jacket when they had a blue one. And it, it could be clear as day, but just the way the human mind works and what you actually focus on when you're in a stressful event or something is, um, you know, just uh, going on, you're, who knows what you're looking at, what you're listening to. Uh, people are actually very bad with their details. And then when you see that kind of transition into, um, into the reporting side, because it, you know, they, you, we as police can't stop them from going to the media, but then they tell the media a wild story. Well, I think that's on the police side of things. That's where police get frustrated and they just get kind of uh, frustrated with the reporting. And you're like, well, that's not what happened. So why, you know, whether it's ACERT or just our own, um, our own bosses, why aren't they out there putting the narrative out? Okay. 
these people said this, now we need to come back with, you know, the other side of things. That might be a pretty huge task considering how many news agencies and social media there are. But um, yeah, I think that from a a ground perspective, that's what the day-to-day officer, that's what they're kind of looking for is that, um, that defense of what they're doing and the truth. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, at the end of the day, we'll always be governed by, you know, the best rules of evidence collection because we want to get to the facts. Because if at the end of the day, either an officer's, you know, one of two things, an officer's either cleared by a search or we send it on for prosecution. We want to make sure either of those determinations is totally appropriate. And we only get to that point with getting the proper facts. And you're only going to get the proper facts when you treat the evidence collection um, appropriately. And so, we're always mindful of that with, with news releases, um, especially early on in the investigation, because as you mentioned, you know, there's a frailty of civilian witnesses in terms of, um, of what they may have seen or what they believe to have seen. And once information gets out and they read this in the newspaper, you know, how good is a witness statement after that fact? And so, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the situation where we can verify something right away and there'll be assistance to the public in terms of understanding why something may have occurred, then we have no problem releasing that information. But the investigation obviously will always come first in terms of making sure that it's uh, dialed in. And uh, since I got the lawyer on on the line here, <laughs> um, maybe I'll ask, can you, because uh, I, I don't think the public realize, realizes this, but can you explain a bit about the amount of oversight that there is for a police officer and the, the rules or acts that they're governed by uh, as opposed to a regular everyday civilian who basically has either your the civil law or the criminal law. You're either charged with something or you're getting sued, but police have further acts such as a police act. Can you kind of talk about the structure of oversight for police? Sure. So specifically with ACERT, which is really by, uh, you know, I won't call it your area of expertise. I mean, I'm new in the role and, and learning uh, new stuff every day, but uh, it's a fascinating job. Um, but we're, we're tied into oversight via section uh, 46.1 of the police act. And so what happens is if an incident occurs um, and uh, a member of the police force, seeing a member of the police force who's got the duty to report, knows that something has occurred, they will notify the director of law enforcement uh, under 46.1. And then the determination is made, you know, is it in scope or out of scope? And so if something's out of scope, you know, it might be, say, uh, you know, uh, uh, someone who self-harms, an officer may be nearby, um, but the person has self-harmed. And so, although an officer is dealing with this individual, they haven't laid a hand on them. Uh, there's been no use of force or anything along those lines. And so, it may be deemed out of scope. Um, but there may be other situations where, for example, you know, it's a tragic um, in-custody death and cell death where you know, somebody uh, ODs. And we might say, well, that's, that's going to be in scope because the person was brought into custody. Uh, they were sitting in a, in a jail cell being dealt with police by police. And this, this death occurred. And so, then ACERT's deployed determine the facts and then to understand whether or not, you know, there's uh, any breach of criminal law um, that would be deserving of prosecution. And so the police act, you know, governs all the police officers within the, uh, the province of Alberta. And that's really where ACER gets its power to investigate. Um, if something is, is out of scope and ACER isn't deployed, it can still stay with the, the home agency for investigation. Uh, and then of course, you know, there's their own, uh, uh, professional standards branches in the various uh, police forces that all have their own acronyms um, that will uh, investigate and, uh, and deal with matters um, along those lines. Uh, when ACE has done an investigation, even when um, it doesn't result in charges, it can go to a Fatality Act inquiry. And so there, as much as it doesn't assign blame, uh, it's a situation where um, there may be recommendations in terms of um, how you know, police forces can improve an aspect of the, uh, of the service they provide to the community to make sure something like a tragic event doesn't occur again. Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of oversight, <laughs> a lot of layers to it. No, there certainly is. I, I, I think that's something the public really doesn't understand is that there's a huge amount of, uh, of oversight in Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, the public needs to understand that, you know, that, that all exists for the benefit of confidence um, in policing. And, uh, you know, when you travel around the world and, um, not to just research other countries, but, um, you know, when you land back in Canada, I think, uh, most Canadians, when they're educated on the amount of oversight and the quality of policing in Canada are thankful to live in this country. Mm-hmm. Well, so can you go over a bit of the, uh, statistics 
for ACERT, such as uh, how many files you guys take in in a year, what your clearance rate is, or um, if you could define that, and um, just how long investigations might take and why they take that long. Sure. So, I mean, first off, the investigations take uh, too long. And, um, and that's not me criticizing my own team of investigators. They are amazing. It's simply that ACERT saw a real jump in the amount of files we're taking in in probably the last five to six years. And so ACER was formed in 2008. And then as it sort of got its, its feet under it and got rolling, um, for the first you know four or five years, just to give you ballpark figures here, there might be you know 35 files that we take a year. Um, then from about 2015, 2016 uh, onwards, we jumped up to an average of 75 to 80 files a year. What didn't occur when that jump in files, when the doubling of files more or less occurred, is that there was no doubling of, um, of budget or staff. And, you know, that's, uh, I love working for government. Obviously, I've spent a career doing it, but um, that's one of the, the frustrations is that when you're in private industry, if you recognize a need, you can reorganize, generate more revenue, possibly hire more staff. But um, mm-hmm. Acer can't do that on its own volition, right? And so we have to get the budget increases. Uh, my predecessor in the role was a, uh, a very a loyal and fierce um, advocate for ACERT and brought that situation to the government's attention. He said, look, ACERT's starting to drown here. Um, <clears throat> when ACERT starts to drown in terms of the number of files, uh, there's a negative effect on a lot of people. There's a negative effect on the public in terms of confidence in policing. The negative effect on subject officers who may have their career on hold. Um, negative effect on affected people and their families. So uh, at the end of the day, in the last budget, we received a $1.4 million increase, which allows ACERT to get a lot more staff. And so we're going to use that to improve our clearance rate. But um, right now, I think we're on track. We're probably getting about 65 files this year. <laughs> so um, we can clear some of these quickly. Um, sometimes, you know, we're, we're um, deployed to investigate you know, there's CCTV or in Calgary, body-worn camera footage, for example, and we're able to look at it and say, you know what, this officer's going to be cleared right away, and we can come to that conclusion. But that still demands a public report that has to go out. So, um, you know, we're trying to improve our clearance rate, but we do have files that have been active now for a number of years. Do, on the body camera thing, uh, do you guys have any input on uh, whether police services, uh, I guess even just more general, have any input on the training that police services do, but the equipment they use? No, we don't. No. So I can tell you, you know, I know Calgary has them, Edmonton doesn't. Um, to me, those are political decisions. They're budgetary decisions. It's an expensive program. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the views of officers that would be wearing them are very, very important because, you know, they're, they're going on an officer's body. And so at the end of the day, I think, um, you know, the EPA's uh, viewpoints seem to be really hurt on that as well because, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, ultimately part of the equipment that an officer would be asked to use and, and extra training is required. Mm-hmm. Selfishly, of course, with ACERT, you know, we want as much evidence as we can get our hands on so that we know that we're coming to the proper facts. And extra video is extra video. So it is remarkably helpful to our investigations, but that's, you know, my, my selfish uh, ACERT viewpoint. But I think at the end of the day, you know, it's really, um, it's up to individual police forces and, um, and the budget and the community. The community says, look, this is important enough to us. You know, we've elected our city councillors. This is what we want them to spend money on. And then I think there's going to be a conversation with um, you know, police union and, um, and the police service itself. And then the termination, whether you go forward on those. But it is, they have been helpful in these certain investigations, that's for sure. Uh, and on kind of the end of the investigation, where, so how do you consider a file uh, concluded or cleared for stats purposes, say we did this many files in a year. Um, so the easy answer on that is for clearing an officer, what will happen is the investigator will complete a report and they'll say, okay, all investigative avenues have been tied off. We have all the evidence we think we could legitimately get in this file. Here's the factual determination of what occurred. Um, then it goes to the legal counsel side where I review those facts and, and myself or my assistant uh, executive director or our other legal counsel would write a report and look at the law and say, okay, was it an offense? Is it reasonable to conclude an offense occurred here or not? And uh, then we do that. And if we clear an officer, what we do is I publish that report. It goes up on our web- website. Um, we don't publish them all. So if it's something more private, 
domestic matter or sexual assault or hasn't been a media release on it, we may not send it out for privacy reasons. Um, but, um, you know, for example, if it's a, a fatal shooting, you know, an officer-involved shooting, um, that would definitely be going out to the public. And so we publish that report and would say search investigations concluded. And then that would be that would be it. That would be a definition of concluding a file. If, on the other hand, it's a file where we believe it needs to go to prosecution, and then uh, we write our report and we send it off to the Alberta Crown Prosecution Service, where they will make a determination whether or not the file meets their standard for prosecution. And then those ACERT investigators become witnesses, basically like any officer would become a witness in a file they investigated. And they'll go down, down that route. And so, you know, we might not determine it, you know, formally concluded because it's an active file in court, but ACERT's job is done aside from testifying and presenting evidence. Okay. Uh, so what's kind of the, uh, maybe wrapping up the ACERT side of things, but what is the future of ACERT? Where do you see police accountability going um and if it's is it going to be all civilianized is it going to be more police or is it just we're going to maintain kind of a mix so it's interesting question because for example um you know in british columbia there's civilian investigators that work with their oversight branch whereas and so they would not be allowed to have uh for example seconded members whereas we do um i'm in favor of the acer model um because really uh, why wouldn't you want the best people investigating and the best people that are investigating uh, files are trained investigators with police forces. So we'll always have those investigators, but um, the ACER model in terms of civilian oversight uh, won't be changing. And so, um, you know, you'll always have uh, an executive director that will be a, a civilian offering the final conclusion uh, based on the facts that the investigator uh, presents. So specifically for ACER, you know, what we're doing with our budget increase is um, given that we seeing that many more call-outs. Uh, we're hiring, uh, or in the process, I should say, of three new investigators in Edmonton and uh, two in Calgary. Uh, and that's going to enable, well, that's, that's important for a few reasons. Um, when we have more investigators, that means that when there's a call-out, we have more people to send out, but we also have other investigators that can stay in the office and conclude their investigations and their reports. So that will speed up our timeline. Uh, and it's also important for our current investigators' mental health because it's not you know, an ideal situation um, and this isn't an ACERT-specific problem. This would be a problem in any uh, investigative unit, in any police force. You can't keep calling out the same people at 3 in the morning yeah. and asking them to work a 24-hour shift. Yeah. Um, they don't want to do, you know, it's not healthy for them. It's not healthy for their family. Um, and so now with a greater staff, we can provide a bit more, you know, time in the office, the time to decompress, and, uh, and time to conclude those reports. And so what I hope to see with ACERT is just that the organization continues to get a bit bigger in terms of staff. So that way we have more hands on deck to get these reports concluded quicker. All right. Well, and we're kind of coming up to the end of our time here. One thing I wanted to make sure I kind of got an opinion on or uh, see if you had a, a viewpoint on it is the, uh, have you seen this public database on police misconduct? It was put out I, by... Yeah, a little group. bit. Yeah. Okay. Someone uh, someone did afford uh, me a bit of details on that. Hey, do you think there's going to be more of those type of things and how, how do those impact, uh, I guess, how do they impact ACERT specifically? Because from a police officer standpoint, uh, and I'm just one of many, but to me, uh, these are people offering commentary uh, way after the fact. And then it's uh, some of the stuff's on, on there is not factually correct. So, do you guys worry about any of those kind of things and what people are putting out there? Or is it just, it's more noise with, you know, social media and, and everything else that's going on? Uh, you know, to be honest, I've never looked at that database. I've only heard about it secondhand. But my main concern right away is, you know, who's actually curating this database? Uh, like, how are they determining they're getting this correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I don't have an answer to that in terms of, uh, you know, who's actually looking at it in depth and who's making sure that all the facts are correct. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I think you've found, you know, that facts aren't correct. Um, that's a huge concern. Uh, you know, ACERT publishes findings um, in a situation where an officer is charged, that name becomes public because it goes to the court process. So there is that accountability. So I always view that there's already, um, you know, if the public wants to, uh, to educate themselves, um, you know, they already have, uh, more defined data that's out there in terms of, you know, the legal review board, 
ACERT's findings, court cases, uh, the media. And so, you know, my fear when I see some sort of a citizen-generated uh, website um, or database is that, well, it's a free country. You know, people can create the stuff that they want to, but they need to be correct, right? Like we're talking about people's lives, people's reputations. And so they need to be correct, but it really doesn't have any effect on what ACERT does. You know, we're either directed to investigate or we're not. And if we are directed to investigate, then we go and we do our due diligence and, and give it 100%. Um, but if we're not directed to investigate, you know, if I saw something that came up in that database, you know, I just I wouldn't concern myself with it. I know it's a, a far different aspect to be a police officer named on that database, so it's mm-hmm. easy for me to say. But, but uh, for me, it's just um, you know, it's not something we've concerned ourselves with. We're just concerned with, you know, what we're directed to investigate, what we have a mandate over, and making sure we get it right. Yeah, and when you look at the databases, you're you're right on point with saying like, look at who who's generating these or putting the information out. Um, I know a lot of the times you'll see it, it's just like when you, you read a news article, everybody's an expert that they talk to and everybody's got, uh, you know, PhD or whatever in front of their name. So they know everything, but they might know a lot, but if you actually look just, uh, one or two degrees into their friends or what they support or the tweets that they retweet or whatever it may be, I think you can find a lot of stuff about people that uh, shows you they, they're kind of slanted in their view one way or another. So they're not necessarily independent um, thinkers and some people have different motivations, but yeah, I, I appreciate the, uh, the insight and uh, definitely have an ex- uh, interesting career. I know you do got to get going here, so we'll kind of wrap it up, but is there um, anything you think we missed or anything we should uh, mention before you do have to go? But- Aside from just uh, thank you, Nathan, for the inv- invitation to uh, to appear on the uh, the podcast, and I can tell you, you know our relationship with uh, EPS and EPA is really really important to me. So I welcome the conversation, and uh, and I can tell you, you know, we're always open to, uh, to any comments, um, questions, issues, or, or criticisms. It's really important to me to, to keep the communication open because we want to make sure we're getting this stuff right. Great. Um, yeah. No. Thank you for coming on, and uh, we'll definitely have you on again because there's always something something happening in the police world and the acert world so we'll definitely have uh have to get you back on so i uh, will wrap it there if you could just hang on the line i'll say bye offline and uh we'll just stop the recording thanks very much